0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. Is that you, Maximus? What are you doing? Over to Jesse Leach right now, ladies and gentlemen, to introduce our amazing guest, our first guest in the history of Stoke the fire. Jesse, who have we got? And let's bring him on.
0: Yeah. So first of all, thank you to everybody who's reached out. And we got this email on our Gmail account. And I saw it and I immediately was like, this guy, needs to come on our show uh so without further ado uh this is maximus mcintyre and he's a uh, russian orthodox priest as well as a metalhead so <laughs> this is a perfect combination and uh the man is dressed for the occasion i love it
2: absolutely always Welcome. dressed for the occasion thank you thank you for having me both of you
0: yes so let's jump right into it my friend um Got right it. off the bat i want to know being a priest now that's been a journey but let's start where you got into hardcore and, and metal music. So you're, you're a young hardcore metal kid. How did that happen? Who got you into it and just kind of walk us through that part of your life?
2: Yeah, man. I think it was like the late 1980s or so really getting into you know, Metallica Slayer, um, you know, the early 1990s Pantera. And I was really always into like a lot of the other stuff on the fringes, like crowbar, um, a lot of those smaller metal bands that, um, you'd be lucky if you catch them on the headbangers ball. Um, But a lot of the stuff I found, it was just through like tape swapping, you know, back then. Or, you know, you have a guy at school, he's like, you got to hear napalm Death," And, you know, I'm saying, oh, you got to hear emperor. (laughs) And you just, you know, trade off. Um, But that lasted for a few years. And then it was like, say, like 1993. I realized we had this incredible local scene. Now, it was very hard to get to the shows because didn't have a driver's license at the time. But it was things like, you know, Only Living Witness, Awesome Band, uh, Stopbox, Um, Tree, Sam Black Church. All that kind of stuff really resonated with me. I went to a couple shows, and I've never looked back. I mean, from there, I really got into, like, Overcast, Converge, uh, your old band, Corinne, uh, yeah. Barrett, you know. There's just so many cool bands back then. Wow. And, you know, I just, you know, I, I really ate up the scene, um, you know, for probably five or six years I was always at shows. Uh, I was in a couple small bands, nothing that really amounted to anything. I was into a a straight edge band called Forward. (laughs) We used to play with Overcast all the time, uh, like at the Space in Worcester and the Espresso Bar, all that stuff. So, you know, metal was always at the beginning of my journey as a kid. You know, I really got into the hardcore and metalcore over the years. Um, You know, I just, even to this day, I mean, that's what I listen to. Um, As far as typical stuff, you know. In pop culture i'm not really into it but i always kind of keep up what's going on in the metalcore scene you know, right now it's like august burns red as LA lay dying kill switch um there's a band silent drive i know i used to play with them when you were in seamless um i'm hoping they're going to release something soon love those guys friends with them um love bane i was friends with a couple of guys in the bane hardcore bands so i love it all man
0: Dude, so you, you, this is Northeastern hardcore right around. So you and I were at the same shows for sure on many occasions. So you're definitely like part of my tribe. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> funny, it, you, you never know, man. You never know. It was no. such an interesting time in our lives, right? And I, you named like all the bands that I grew up around and listening to. That's incredible. So, no, you know, the Northeastern United States, um, for those who don't know, just an explosive scene in the 90s into the 2000s. Basically, changing you know and creating genres. It was an incredible time. But another thing that's really interesting about that, this part of the world, is uh, there's a lot of folklore. There's a lot of stories being told. There's a lot of hauntings. You know, New England in general is known for its hauntings. So I think this that's a perfect segue into. So you're into hardcore. You're into middle, You're into that scene. How did you find yourself going from that? into, which is really what caught my eye on this, working with Ed and Lorraine Warren. And for our listeners, Ed and Lorraine Warren, if you've seen the movies uh, Conjuring, Annabelle, or The Nun, that is all based off of stories and accounts mm-hmm. from the Warrens. So you found yourself at 19 years old, correct? you yes, starting yes, to work with them in some, some. So take us through that. So you're a hardcore punk uh, metal guy. How does yep, this yep. connection to Ed and Lorraine Warren happen? Well,
2: in 1996, I started um, college at Western New England College in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I'd heard of them before. And around Halloween time, they do a lot of like lectures and stuff at various colleges. In 1996, I saw a flyer uh, for the Campus Activities Board saying that, hey, these ghost hunters are coming to campus. And I said, wow, that sounds really interesting. I've seen them on television. Uh, at that point, I had not read any of their books, but I knew they had many books that were out. And I went and just check it out. And quite honestly, I was blown away. Um, they did about a three-hour lecture, slideshow, uh, videos, and telling about their exploits. Now, for me, what resonated some, there's something there that resonated um, when they got into some of the heavier cases um I liked the fact that they were helping people. It wasn't just about the scares. It wasn't about the the lore. They were doing real work with like clergy, um, psychiatrists, and working on those heavy duty cases that no one really knew what to do with those people. And that always kind of stuck in my mind. Now, I fast forward about, maybe about a year and a half later, and I changed my major in college from criminal justice to journalism. I was really getting involved in English literature and writing and all this stuff, I had a real passion for it. And I actually just wrote to them. Um, I saw them probably one other time in between at a lecture. And I said, look, you know, I, I attend Western College. I'm doing some writing for some local newspapers. Do you have any work? I, I noticed you have a journal, a bi-monthly journal that you publish. I'm really interested in your work. And I expected, I wasn't gonna hear anything. You know, I just figured, write a letter, one and done. I actually got a call from Lorraine Warren, and she invited me down to their house in Monroe, Connecticut. So, I mean, I was 19 years old. I was pretty stoked about this, going to be able to, you know, meet with the Warrens who I'd seen a couple times or seen on television. And when I went down there, it was just the three of us. We talked for a while, got to know them better. Um, And Ed had this incredible idea for a book. And he said, he used to say, kid, he goes, Hey kid, I got a, I got an idea for you. And Lorraine kind of went off and I sat with Ed for about an hour and he had hand typed on a typewriter. He's pretty old school, even back then. Um, a little like, book proposal. He said, I love your writing samples. You know, could you perhaps take this and let's develop these cases and these stories into a book. And you can imagine, I mean, my floor must've hit the, hit the ground you know the they weren't really obviously as famous as they are now because of the movies but they were known through like the amityville horror like a lot of those cases and stuff and i agreed i said well, let's do this this is incredible um you know when do we start he said all right i want you to go home today you're familiar with the amityville case um, he wanted me to write up their experiences with amityville and also what they experienced in their own home as a result kind of like a sample chapter and i started the writing project And then it kind of, you know, things get put on hold and there's, you know, they're traveling, doing cases, and doing lectures. And Lorraine reached out and said, I have another idea. We're not really getting any submissions for our journal. Would you write the next journal for us? And I started writing up case files. They gave me tapes, cassette tapes. Um, I get to interview them about different cases. And I really developed a passion for that, like just writing small articles And I kind of continued on the book, but it was kind of always something always stopping it. You know, it was just like a project that could never get fully done. Um, From there, unfortunately, in 2001, uh, Ed collapsed. Um, He had an awful circumstance where um, I think it was August 2001. He went out to call the cat at night and he just dropped and his heart stopped. Um, From there, unfortunately, he was never fully the same, Um, he lived till 2006, God rest his soul. Um, And so we never had a chance to finish that book project, but I did continue to write some of the articles and uh, started working on a lot of the cases, uh, primarily with their nephew, John Zaffis, who's known for like the haunted collector on the sci-fi channel and so forth. Um, So at first it was really a, a, a writing endeavor. I wasn't sure if I really wanted to get involved in casework, even though I wanted to see the things I was writing about, but I did get involved with casework, and then kind of the rest is history. From you know that probably like 1999-2000 timeframe to about 2005, um, the early part was the Warrens cases. Then it was really a lot of the John Zaffis cases. I mean, I worked you know probably about 175 cases in person during those years, as well as screening out hundreds of other cases, and then in 2005. I entered what's called the clerical state. So I was ordained to the minor orders, eventually as a deacon and then as a priest. So I kind of left that world. I thought there was some things I didn't fully agree with. And now when I'm involved in cases, it's more for resolution. It's to pray with those people that maybe have these demonic afflictions or something happening in their home, Uh, even occasionally exorcism, which is very rare. But it is something I've had to get the blessing of the bishop to use in some cases. So I really went from kind of writing to this uh, cyclical research to the clerical state. But I've always been involved in this realm uh, in one way or another for about twenty-two, twenty-three years now. I'm now in my
1: forties. I want to ask you: When was the first occasion when you know you were presented with something undeniably? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you turned from let's say a non-believer, for lack of a better word, into sure. a firm believer in spirits and ghosts and, and other mm-hmm. dimensions. Was there a, a singular experience that turned yes. <laughs> that coin for you? Tell us about that. Now,
2: even to this day, I'm I'm very skeptical. I don't buy this hook, line, and sinker. um You really need to have evidence and witnesses and stuff. And even when I was writing up the cases before I went on them, I believed they were possible. I knew Ed and Lorraine mm-hmm. were not lying. But i still hadn't really experienced anything myself to say aha this is real well that all changed when i went to my first exorcism (laughs) so that was that was quite a thing um i was not ordained obviously i was still very young probably early 20s um john zaffis the the psychic researcher set that all up he was helping a woman that was having incredible uh pain and turmoil in her life um And essentially, it was an exorcism. I can't really say where because of privacy, but I'll say Connecticut. That's where it was, big state. So I think that's safe to say Connecticut. Um, I was asked to go uh, to help document, sort of film it, uh, to record it, and actually assist the cleric, sit behind the woman if he needs something like, you know, holy water or uh, whatever he needs just to help him. And if, God forbid, something happened and she needed to be held down or restrained, I'm a pretty big guy, sit behind her and just try to help calm the situation. And I have to honestly admit, I really didn't expect much going into it. Um, I truly felt at that time, perhaps a lot of these people that were deemed obsessed or possessed or afflicted probably had mental illness. That's really what I thought. And you know that can be a, the case as well, but this was something much different. So probably about 15 minutes into this exorcism ritual, And I had the tape recorder and the camera set up and all this. And, you know, I'm listening to the prayers and I'm sitting behind the woman. I noticed she started to get, I guess you could say, a little agitated, kind of starting to move and kind of writhe a little bit. And then all of a sudden she just leapt up and she screamed, you are not the master, obviously uh, against Christ that was being invoked in the prayers. Now I'm a scared 21, 22 year old. So I, I, grab onto her shoulders to keep her at bay, and I couldn't. She was just so strong. And as this happened, there was loud bangings in the church, almost like somebody was striking the walls or the floor. It got very, very cold. This is all happening within like 30 seconds. And there's all these weird noises. Um, now I call it fluttering. It's almost like if you go to the grocery store, and you get one of those bags you pack you know, your vegetables in, and you kind of go like this and make a noise with it. You could hear it, but it's like fluttering all around you, like this weird noise. It got cold, and then there was a giant boom. And the only way I can describe it is if, like, somebody took a sledgehammer and, like, hit the side of the church, but that doesn't even describe how loud it was or how it resonated. And then she just sat down like nothing happened. And then he continued the exorcism prayers. Um, Myself and the others over there are all kind of looking at each other, like, what just happened? And – you know, probably about 45 minutes later, everything was done, um, everything was calm, and we went about our way. And after the exorcism, I, I grouped with John Zaffis and a few of the other researchers to talk about this, and we all experienced the same thing. It was this buildup, and then all of a sudden, everything just got so cold. And this was during the day. It was warm out. We all heard the noises. We heard the bangs and even had those – at that time, was on cassette tape. So we had it on actual cassette tapes and things like this and on the video camera. It was just the weirdest experience. And that was the first time I said, okay, I think there's something more to this. You know, this isn't all ghost stories or wishful thinking. Um, it was just a, a really odd occurrence. And then from there, of course, there was more as I got like deeper into the cases. And um, a lot of those cases that were very, very dark and people needed help. There was other experiences, but that's that one moment where I was like, okay, um i also have to be very cautious because this stuff is real
1: yeah mm. let me ask you one more thing then i'm sure jesse wants to jump in because this yeah. is, all of this is right up his alley this stuff so <laughs> what was the worst if you don't mind talking about it yeah. with, with, with obviously all due respect what was the worst instance of some form Mm -hmm. of possession that you witnessed and and were, you know, there and and saw firsthand because I I watched an interview with Ed and Lorraine on YouTube earlier. And one of the things that he said, which stuck out to me was you don't challenge demons because that's when it gets really dangerous. And and that's obviously Mm -hmm. when these, you know, these dark forces really present themselves. So what's the worst one that comes to mind for you when you were like, Oh my God, this is serious shit. We're in here.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of cases where, um, I think the best example is like a family and they're terrified I and mean, they're just, they're really under some type of assault. And, you know, now as a priest, I handle things much differently. I have a different worldview, uh, different expectations and, and methods that I did back then. I've changed a lot as a person, we can get into that later. But I think one of the worst things I saw uh, there was actually a woman who had, ended up having, I believe it was 17 exorcisms. And I was there in the house, documenting some of the stuff or writing up the file um i wasn't there for the previous 16 exorcisms they've been going on since the late 1980s but i was there for her last one and one of the things when we were talking about the case interviewing her it was very odd um, i'm sitting at a, a dining room table essentially she's across from me there's other people sitting at the table and i, I kind of get chills thinking about it sorry um this is broad daylight. And as I'm looking at her talking, this dark form, if you will, kind of just glides behind her and goes into the kitchen and kind of just goes away. I didn't say anything. And she looked at me. and She said, honey, you saw it, didn't you? Ugh. And I was I was just like, oh, my goodness. And she's like, don't worry. It's not going to hurt you. <sighs> and I was so freaked out. I was like, all right, this is a legit case. I knew it was, but I didn't have any confirmation after that, maybe 30 seconds or a minute later, so we're like in the dining room area. There's an open area. Then there's the kitchen. All the knobs on the, the stove in the kitchen started turning on by themselves. She got up and would say, like, knock it off, cut it out, yelling at whatever it was. And she turned the knobs on the stove off. 10, 15 seconds later, the knobs on the stove would turn back on on their own. And I was like, all right, this is getting too weird. She came and sat back down in the dining room. And then one of the uh, the men I was with, his clothes, his sweater started being pulled away from his body as we're sitting there at the dining room table. And it's like, all right, this, this is legit. I, you know, I don't know exactly what it is. Um, it, it's very hard to diagnose and say with certainty what's going on. But there was no doubt there was phenomena there. I was asked to assist at her last exorcism uh, before her repose. Uh, God rest her soul as well. Uh, incredible woman that struggled uh, immensely. And one of the worst things, this is gonna sound completely crazy, but it's the truth, so I'll just tell you. Um, I've been interviewed before and people don't understand how it's possible, but um, when I was assisting, and you you have, unfortunately during exorcism, sometimes there's a lot of people drooling or vomiting, things like this. And I'm not saying that's a sign of possession because it could be just mental illness or play acting. I don't necessarily see that as a sign but I would assist in that, el- that realm or uh, possible restraining gently or the same thing, helping the clergyman. And in this case, when she went under possession uh, one of the researchers there also started vomiting and was getting sick. And then this is, she just, it's so weird to say, but her head kind of just turned to the possessed woman and she looked at me, her eyes were wild. They would not blink. And they were different. Like they were just, you know, I've seen people on drugs. I've seen all this. I've never seen anything like it. It was so wild. It was bestial. It's like when you look into the eyes of like a wolf. It's just like animalistic and bestial. And it's just like 10 or 15 minutes of just chaos. And then everything sort of stopped as the clergyman, you know, finished the rite of exorcism. And that one still stays with me because I saw the phenomenon in the house beforehand, Um, I saw how the family was afflicted. Um, I saw how they all witnessed the phenomena. And there's plenty of evidence and witnesses that saw stuff over the years. One of the things I didn't realize is uh, one of the exorcists that worked on that case, uh, I can give his name. It was Bishop Robert McKenna. He worked a lot with the Warrens and John Zaffis. Uh, He reposed probably only about three or four years ago. He was a a world-renowned exorcist, and he was out of Connecticut, believe it or not, uh, very close to where the Warrens live. And I guess when he went to do a house blessing one day for this woman to try to help uh, keep at bay what was going on with all the phenomena, the moving furniture, all that stuff. Um, I guess there was this really creepy thing that happened to him in her dining room on a chair in the corner. She had a, a stuffed duck, just like a stuffed animal. And when he started the pray uh, prayers uh, to bless the home, the duck started to quack. It was making quacking noises. Now, obviously it's a stuffed animal. It can't do that. It's a projection, but it was one of those things like it, that's what it does. A lot of this phenomenon, it's, it doesn't make sense. It confuses you. Um, it kind of frightens you because h- how outlandish it can be. Um, and that was one of those cases I said, all right, hook, line and sinker. This is legit. Um, there's no way this is fraudulent. Um, but I'd also don't want to diminish the suffering of the person. Um, it's easy now to like to look back and talk about this stuff but my motive, even back then, pretty quickly was: I see families or people that are in dire need of help, and most of the clergy turn them away. A lot of times, modern psychiatry cannot help them, and I have to say that's part of the reason why I think I was pushed towards the priesthood. Um, there was always something there, but I think, and exorcism and and uh, these cases, it's so such a small part of what I do. You know, I serve liturgy, I baptize, I preach, I visit the sick, I spend time with the dying. It's a tiny, tiny percentage of what you do. But when you do it, it has to be for care and attention and love to those people because there is real suffering there. And that's one of those cases, there was so much suffering.
1: The final thing I'll say is this, is in the Conjuring 2 film, and, yep. you know, a lot of the extent of my knowledge, sadly, is just the movies. But there's a scene where uh, Lorraine says to one of these English paranormal invest- investigators, because he's excited about how all oh, we're going to be part of history. And she says to him, is that why you're here? Because you want to be part <sighs> of history. That's not what we're about. Like, we're here, as you just said, to save these people, to yeah. help these people. Um amazing work Jesse jump in on this where are we going next so many questions so many questions <laughs> um, I'll do my
0: best to, to focus on them so I think first of all here's one thing I'm personally curious about because mm-hmm. I grew up my father was a minister um he got pulled he actually retired and got pulled back into the ministry um <laughs> and he was also a you know a, just a theologian a scholar uh he's got a PhD and um you know uh he's also got two master's degrees so he's he's of your ilk um My question, I got a bunch of them, but let's start with this. How, how do you go about and have more than one exorcism? So if one exorcism doesn't work, what, what's happening in that situation? Is this person engaging in, in demonic activity? Like, how does it happen? Like that many times I've never heard of someone having to have that many exorcism. What, what is your insight into that? How does that happen so many times?
2: I feel with a lot of the cases, they start because of engagement with the occult or the paranormal. They want to reach out and experience something. It could be, you know, Ouija board or whatever it is. Uh, the Warrens said that probably 30 to 40% of their cases, there were diabolical started with a Ouija board. Yeah. Now it's just a piece of, it's just a planchette. It's a piece of wood or pressed cardboard. It's nothing, but it's more the intent of what you're doing and trying to conjure something. Um, in my casework now as a priest, I would say, Almost 100% of the time, if something comes back, it's because the people invited it back in for whatever reason. Um, right. A good example I have is one of the last exorcisms that I did. And like I said, this is very rare. It's not something I do all the time. Um, the person was asking after the exorcism, should they invite the ghost hunters and the psychic they had back into the home to verify something is not there? And it was like the total opposite of what we had talked about for months leading up to that. Is no, you're going to leave that stuff alone. Hmm. You know, you brought a lot of that curiosity in, and things got worse. You don't need them to validate anything. Just you know, trust in God. Uh, you know, we've given you kind of the uh, the path to follow, and don't engage with these things. And they really can't engage back with you. Yeah, there are those cases. Thing though, right?
0: You you can't, and that's a big misconception. And and I think where people go wrong is your curiosity and your manifestation. So, so your body language, your spiritual language. You know, people who are just like, "Ooh, this is cool!" Like that's a dangerous behavior. And I've seen it myself. And you you mentioned Ouija boards. That's important to say again for people who take that lightly. I have seen a person get thrown across the room by an invisible force from just doing a Ouija board when we were kids and she went white as a ghost and the, the little thing cracked in six six cracks and we heard like a low growl, my brother and I, and I'll never forget that as long as I live. It's, you know, that mm-hmm. curiosity can be quite dangerous. And I'm, I'm glad to true. hear you say that because I think it's something that needs to be said to people. Uh, when you engage in this behavior, it can really turn dark.
2: It can. And I'm not one to impose my beliefs on others. You know, I'm a, a, I am get it. You know, everybody has a different circumstances or a different history. But I think a lot of the stuff got uh, really bad, probably in the 2004 time frame, because back then, and this is not to put them down. I've met them before. They're nice guys. But Ghost Hunters became a popular show on the sci-fi channel. And what happened, it kind of took all this stuff kind of on the fringe and put it to the mainstream. And then from there, you have all these shows like Ghost Adventures and, you know, probably 30 or 40 different paranormal shows that have really uh, gained the public consciousness. And I was reading actually a, a paper by a psychologist He was talking about a lot of this lore. And in his research, he kind of identifies that 2004 timeframe as when the public consciousness kind of changed. And you go from maybe having a couple of fringe like ghost hunting groups now to every state the country has like 50 or 100. And there's people going out there looking for this stuff or sometimes going into the homes to help people, but they're not really equipped to do so. Um, and I think it's only going to get worse as we go on. Um, this stuff is not taboo. It's very accepted. And, you know, it's it's part of the, you know, the mainstream right now. It really is
0: yeah it's funny too because you know if you've grown up seeing that type of stuff like i've seen ghosts i've seen i've actually spoken to a demonic entity through a person um, i've had these crazy experiences that i don't really talk about and when i do tell them which is usually around a fire ironically enough like this is <laughs> called stoke the fire um you know i'm careful who i tell and then I'm not a big fan of like, you know, people are like, oh, let's go ghost hunting. Let's do that. I'm not seeking any of that out. And I have no interest in when you, when you're around it and you see it and you see what happens and you respect it and you, it's a healthy respect where I don't want that shit in my life. Like when I moved yeah. here where I live now, there's nothing going on here. And I lived in a haunted house most of my life and it was such a relief. So I'm careful with the energy that we put into this house, my girlfriend and I are very careful with who we allow in. And like, it's funny. I take that seriously. And to, you're right to people, it's entertainment to people. It's like, Ooh, this will be fun. It's like, no, <laughs> there's you, you, you might get, you know, it might be cool for a second, but you know, um, and maybe you can speak on this too. Spirits can attach to you. So like, it's not only just your house, but you as a person. And I've had, I've heard cases of this as well, where spirits can attach to you personally, like cling to you. And if you're Feeding that energy, you know, you, you mentioned intention. That's a powerful word. That's a, that's mm-hmm. dangerous ground to to walk on. And we are living in a society where this is sort of entertainment, and it's yeah, it's interesting. I can't even imagine.
2: No, that's exactly that the issue is. I agree.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm so emotionally involved right now, Matt, take the reins. I'm just like processing, <laughs> bringing back memories, man.
1: <laughs> I'd love to get into faith and spirituality in a moment's time, but before we do, it would be remiss of me. And sorry if this is a bit of a corny question, but the no. Annabelle doll, um, yes. did, did you, in, in, did you see that? Did you experience, um, anything in relation to that doll? Uh, did you get any stories firsthand from Ed and Lorraine about, stories relating to it i wonder if you could shed some light because that will probably be with people listening to this who don't know too much about their worlds everybody knows i think now because of entertainment ironically that annabelle doll and you know the mythology around that so i wonder if you could shed some light on that now
2: i didn't experience anything per se with the doll but it was pretty creepy the first time i met the annabelle doll (laughs) i'll tell you about that so this is when i was really first starting to get to know the warrens i knew of the case Um, It was written up in their book, The Demonologist, by Gerald Brittle. Um, They had had pictures of her and the case uh, at their lectures, but I had not seen the Annabelle doll in person. Well, I went to the Warrens' house. This is early on in our relationship, and I brought my girlfriend at the time and my college roommate, and we were going down there, and the Warrens would open up their home. Um, They used to let people come into their museum, as they called it, of all kinds of artifacts from the cases, and we arrived there down in Monroe, Monroe Connecticut. Uh, this is probably like 1999, maybe. Um, I was still in college. So I, I think it's probably about that time frame. And Ed took us down. You go into their house, they go down into the basement. They call it the Halloween room. And they just had a table and they used to have like people you could talk. And they had, you know, different things that have given to them over the years. And it was very, it had nothing to do with the museum. It was, it was off of it. And Ed talked to us for probably like 90 minutes. And we had all these cool, you know, I had them to myself, sort of, just with the other two people with me. And then I could fire off all kinds of questions and really dig into some of their experiences and cases. And at the end of it, he's going to take us through the museum. And this was probably, I know it was the winter because it was very cold. And Ed said, you know, I'm not feeling 100% today. He's like, I trust you. I'm going to let you go in the museum by yourself. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So off of this room, he has, like, this big wooden door. He opens it, and there's a passageway, and it kind of goes down, and it curves off, and it goes into their former art studio, which is now the museum. So he said, you know, take your time. Don't touch anything. But if you do, let me know. (laughs) You know, he had this whole thing, like, you know, this is serious stuff. Don't touch anything. But he's like, I trust you. So, of course, I think I was kind of pushed to the front to – to make the way down to the passageway. And he said, come up when you're done. And we're going down the passageway, which is probably 30 or 40 feet. And as soon as you turn, you look through the door, there's the Annabelle doll on the opposite wall. And I gotta admit, it was, I mean, I didn't know what I really felt of the case at that time. I, I knew they weren't lying about it, I knew it was legit. But I'm like, is this like, you know, is it beefed up? And just to see that doll kind of looking out the window at you, I made my way over to the door opened it up. We went in, we looked at everything in the museum. Uh, They typically didn't keep heat or power to the museum because they claimed when it had that in there, things would move off the shelves and be toppled over all the time. They theorized that perhaps it was using, you know, the heat, electricity, energy to to manifest phenomena. So it's very cold in there. And so we probably spent about 10 or 15 minutes in there. And I was like, I had enough. Like, all right, I've seen this, let's get out of here. And, you know, finished up our dialogue with Ed and Lorraine upstairs and we're on our way. But one weird thing that happened, and I'm not saying it's because of the visit or because of Annabelle or anything like this, but on the way home at a Volkswagen Jetta, it broke down probably about 20 minutes. The alternator went and we had to get the car towed 100 miles all the way home. So I always thought that was kind of creepy as well that the car died. Um, it was the only time I really saw her because my rest of my meetings – or going over writings and stuff with them would be in the house. I never really wanted to go out there to tell you the truth.
1: I watched an interview on YouTube again with Ed and Lorraine, and uh, Ed was saying that it was a priest had come over and said, this thing has no power over God, and he started Mm -hmm. smashing the doll. Have you heard (laughs) this story? Uh, I have heard that story. And and the guy got in his car, and and he had a car accident. Thankfully, he didn't die, but he got very badly beat up, and that was like straight after leaving their house. Now...
2: (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the stories they, they used to tell about at their lectures, as, as well as, um, I believe it was a police officer or a sergeant also that challenged the doll once, and also had some type of negative reaction. Um, so that have been people that have uh, challenged it, um, not something I would do, I wouldn't want to play with that. Um, I think that's just better left ignored. And I think even earlier on, I never pressed to go back into the museum. I saw it once and that was enough for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I also have to bring up, but I think it's interesting that it's the energy you're talking about and how they didn't have, you know, heat or electricity. That's, I find that fascinating because some of the, most of the incidents when I was growing up did have to do with electricity, blinking, blinking lights and spinning fans that would stop and spin. Yeah. And uh, yeah, energy. Because that's essentially what the, and, and I think this is a good transition into spirituality, um, et cetera, is the spirit world is energy it's energy that manifests itself so mm-hmm. it's that's very real so regardless of people who who are naysayers that might say you know oh this is all bullshit, you know because i know people that laugh at me when i tell my stories um yeah so i guess how, did you have them so you had a moment where you believed in the spirit world you you saw this was real at what point did you decide that that meant for you to sort of get into the ministry like how how do you go from just kind of checking this stuff out to being like all right now i have to, i'm going to dedicate my life to helping people through my ministry w- where was that how did that transition happen
1: could i also I just was, add as well yeah. as an adage to that question and maybe if you could speak on the the difference similarities and or difference between uh, you know spirituality and faith sure and maybe that will relate to this topic as yeah, well.
2: yeah ab- absolutely um So, of course, you know, faith is kind of a hope and a desire for those things that are unseen. And um, obviously, there's all sorts of different faiths that go into various religious belief systems. Then there's those that, of course, maybe embrace spirituality without the formalism and believe in maybe spirit and psychic energy and things like this, but not maybe um, like a dogmatic path. And I respect that. Like, I found what I believe is, uh, I guess, the pearl of great price, something very special. Uh, in the Orthodox Church, I wasn't born and raised Orthodox. I was born and raised uh, Roman Catholic, and I kind of veered back and forth. And um, when I was younger, I kind of got interested in, you know, whether it's the psychic research or even a little bit of like Jewish mysticism and things like this. Um, but yeah, there's there's so many paths, and I think for the most part, people kind of pick and choose what they want, which can be good or bad because we can lead ourselves to various delusions. But when it comes to faith and spirituality, it's very charged. And I notice that being a priest and um, typically in my garb and even when people approach you in public, um, they might have questions. And I try to just meet people where they are. Um, no judgment, um, you know, things like that. And I come from a place of love. That's, what I, that's kind of the way I kind of see things and um, not trying to push people. Obviously, I want to uh, steer them in the right path. But, yeah, it's, it's a tough subject. Uh, For me, and kind of an answer to Jesse's question, I think it was probably like that 2003 time period, um, heavily involved in cases, but also had kind of a draw to help people in other ways as well, Um, like organizing, you know, food and clothes drives and things like that to help their temporal needs, Uh, being kind of drawn to like the the mystical reality of uh, church services, not, you know, Wouldn't see it so much in Protestantism, but in Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism, the, you know, Catholic theology, it's the mass. For us, we call it the liturgy and uh, Holy Communion and uh, the intercession of angels or uh, saints before us, things like this. I really started to really think about it more in depth because of what I was seeing in the cases. And one thing I was trying at that time, I was maybe considering leaving this type of work and just putting it behind me. But I also realized, like I said earlier, there's people that really struggle and need the help. And, and they after turned talking away at
1: so many other places, right?
2: They turned away everywhere, unfortunately, even from the clergy themselves. So I think after talking with like other clergy, I wasn't a clergyman yet. Um, talking with my good friend John Zaffis, who did the research, um, talking with then who would become my wife. Um, I'm married with two children, um, and trying to figure this all out. I really felt that there was a deeper calling there, and I pursued it. Um, but the paranormal definitely had uh, a way of, I think formulating how I viewed the world. My worldview changed. I realized that spiritual matters were a reality and not something on the fringes. Um, I began to realize that we interact with these things, whether we believe in it or not. And they're here. You know, these spiritual forces are, you know, it's just part of reality, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And to uh, some really good clergymen that, you know, really lived what they taught. I think they steered me in the right direction. Um, Eventually, of course, I was ordained, and I've never left that behind me. I don't obviously promote ghost hunting or seeking this stuff out or using psychics or any of that stuff. I talk more against that stuff and not of a place of hate or saying that everybody else is wrong and I'm right, but because I have a great love for people, and I think they're leading themselves down a road that is so, uh, it just, it devastates the soul, I guess. And if I'm as a priest supposed to help people, I don't want to steer them the wrong way. And I really think this realm, the psychic realm, if you call it that, is very dark. We don't need to engage with it. We have uh, things of light. I mean, for me, the most mystical experience I have and have ever had and will always have, happens every time I serve the divine liturgy in church. I invoke the Holy Spirit to change the body uh, the bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ. We believe there's angels there. We believe there's saints. It doesn't matter if you're poor, you're rich, you're old, you're young, you're sick, you're healthy. We all partake of that chalice. We're united in love with one another and united with love of God. So those are the kind of experiences I'm trying to nurture and, and present to people that they can experience true mysticism and true spirituality at a much deeper level and negate that darkness and actually push it away. And I mean, that's what we believe in our our church, the Orthodox faith, which is the oldest Christian denomination there is, Um, you know, from Christ and the apostles and those bishops, we have an unbroken line back to Christ himself. My bishop is a successor of St. Andrew, the apostle. And we do these things because we believe they heal people. They bring them from spiritual death to life. And, That's always what I try to instill in people is that, you know, it's not mysticism for itself. It's to transform us, to take us from um, one state of darkness and put us into the light. And I think that's really what faith and spirituality is supposed to do. But a lot of the different belief systems, I think, focus too heavily on themselves and their own spiritual development in a way that makes them uh, try to exalt themselves like a god instead of worshiping the god and seeking communion with him. Yeah,
0: I'm glad you brought that up because that's a problem that I've always had with organized religion, you yeah. know, because there are good people in it and there are people that are in it for the right reasons to help people out. But there's also the other side of it, which ego comes into it and there a lot of corruption. And I find, yeah. you know, you mentioned the original church and I know my church history You know, I was a very learned child um, being the, the son of a, a minister because uh, my dad um, is very much into like the origin of Christianity, the church, the division. So I guess to me what i'm interested in is speak on how that the church got corrupted so you 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 have like the original church then you have so much division i mean you look at all the different denominations and and i've seen just the the worst side of it as well people who are are corrupted by their faith and and are preaching hate from their pulpits really like there's no there's no bones about it and i've always admired the the orthodox you know because there's a reverence there that you don't get in a lot of uh especially in Western, you know, cause you're, you're coming from more of an Eastern uh, for people who don't know there's the Eastern and the Western church and the Western church to me just falls short on so many levels of like the reverence of that spirituality. And um, so I guess speak on that, like, what would you say to people who are like, look at re- religion or organized religion and say, there's so much corruption and hypocrisy Uh, I love that you keep invoking the word love. And I think that's important for people to hear too, because you really are speaking to the light and the darkness of spirituality, even just within the church because of the corruption that does exist.
2: Yeah. I mean, if we look at the early church, obviously it was very persecuted. It really didn't come out of the catacombs until the 300s. And there was obviously different movements and things that were uh, caused and, and caused separation About the year, I think it's 451, we see part of, like, the Coptic Church and the Armenian Church kind of breaking away. Um, They date dated at 1054, but it really started to occur much earlier. We have the Great Schism. We have what became the Roman Catholic Church, and what became the Orthodox Church. And then off of the Roman Catholic Church, you have the Protestant Reformation, because obviously they saw a lot of the corruption, Martin Luther and so forth. And I think he was really trying to create a, a new movement, being an Augustinian monk, but then it... of spiraled and you have John Calvin and now we have probably well over 30,000 Protestant denominations. Um, Some agree, some are at war with one another and so forth. Um, I I obviously treat anybody with dignity and respect, but I grew up in the Western church and I left it after reading church history and really looking at the original teachings and what like um, the monks in the desert spoke, you know, true spirituality and how to manifest it. That was still maintained in the christian east so i actually converted um i was already a priest in the western denomination and i converted to orthodoxy in 2007 um the end of 2007 and i've never looked back i mean it was just so apparent to me um even though like the liturgy that we use every week i mean if i went back so we got into like the bill and ted's excellent adventure phone booth and went back <laughs> in time you know i could bring somebody from the year three or four hundred bring them back to my church and they're going to recognize the liturgy cuz it's yeah. unchanged. Yeah. You know, and I
0: think this is I think too that you also you mentioned the Roman Catholic Church and that's just such a huge shift in that, you know. And I feel like that's where you're mixing politics and religion cuz you know the Roman Empire. So I feel like, yeah. you know, and we could this is a whole other podcast we <laughs> forever cuz I'm so intrigued by it cuz I was raised with it, but that's where I find a lot of fault was the political side of things and you mentioned the dogmatics um you know there's just so much room for error. There's so much room for contradiction in the, you know, how things have been changed throughout translation. So sure. it's interesting. I love to hear you talk about that because I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between all these denominations. You know, when you drive down the street and you see this kind of church and that kind of church, like who knows, like there's so many divisions in that. So I, I love that you're pointing back to the original because I think that's the closest thing to something that I would agree with coming from a place of love, the original teachings of what yeah. Christian religion was supposed to be, you know? And it's what a, it's, it, a,
2: it's you know. a lot simpler than people realize. Um, yeah, there are some aspects of doctrine and dogma that, you know, define who Christ was. Um, there's all these things we should embrace because they keep us on the right path, but there are so many elements of corruption, as you mentioned, like, I mean, in the Western church, so many things I would disagree with, like papal infallibility, things that were not part of the original church they became kind of a defining moment for different groups like that. Um, and we can make it much simpler. I mean, the faith of the apostles in the early church, those in the catacombs, and those today really should be equal. There shouldn't be any difference. What they believed then, hopefully we believe now. And if not, then what is the problem? Where was the break, the disconnect? Who put in their own ideas that may be corrupted? Um, and that's why when I found the Orthodox Church – and I was looking at what they taught, which is what essentially the apostles taught. I was like, I have to go there. If I have to go just as a layman and that's it, fine, I'll be home. Um, mm-hmm. But eventually I was um, reordained as a priest and, and made a priest in obviously the Orthodox church. Um, but there was a, a spirituality there that was foreign to me as a Western Christian. Um, mm-hmm. There was just, I mean, it all it's all based on love. It's, I mean, God is love. And I saw that there. Not that there's not bad people, or there hasn't been, you know, corrupt orthodox hierarchs, or you know, kings or queens over the years. That happens because of the human condition. But at least the faith remained unadulterated, and was what you know, somebody in the desert in the year 300 is the same as like what a monk will teach today. You know, it's 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 a beautiful thing to be a part of, mm-hmm. and it's very mystical. And it, it instead of, put it this way, Jesse. So a lot of Western Christianity kind of acts like a judge and a jury in a courtroom where the Eastern church is more like a hospital where our souls are nurtured and healed and make us who we are. And I think that's the, the divide is when we're, you know, rigid and we're angry and everybody else is a heretic or this or yeah. that. We, we kind of lose the love of Christ. I mean, we, we, we have to go kind of a different direction and there's times we do have to stand up for the faith, of course, but you know, our brother is not our enemy. We're taught to love our enemy. If they think different than us i mean we can't have hate or resentment in our hearts to them i mean Mm -hmm. we have to If I'm to be christ-like i have to act like christ
0: right see that's the one thing that i've held on to from you know my faith because i i no longer can say i 100 identify Mm -hmm. uh, with a specific religion but you know what you just said right there is the core of it right i mean the golden rule do unto others you know love thy neighbor i love Love that there's, (laughs) there's power in faith so let's let's get back on yeah the, the, the energies, so I for me, what I want to continue to talk about a little bit is the dark versus light. So you're talking about this light and how it changed your life and that's helped you to combat the dark. So what about people who are, let's go back to the people who are dabbling, you know, because I know a lot of people who are very interested in, they just call it the blanket spirit world. But you, you're saying, and I, I believe this as well, there is an evil, there is a dark, and then there is a light as well. Can I,
1: I thro- I- can I throw in an adage to that fact? Um, in the 50s, when rock and roll began to first boom, Right. And all the parents and the institutions were looking at this new art form and saying, this is the devil's music. This is here to corrupt our youth. Now, we all know as music lovers that music is a place of positivity and love and strength. And, you know, it's not that different to a communion when you're at a concert and we kind of in a way do worship the music in the same way. But here's what's interesting. It's pretty correlative between the birth of rock and roll and the decline if of western civilization if we want to call it that if you look at the development of music punk hardcore metal all those things and the rise in crime and the fallout of you know a lot of society i mean you can look at those two timelines and there's and we can throw movies in the mix as well um you know you mentioned how movies have played a part in you know giving the kind of wow factor to these forces we're talking about as a music lover and a man of faith what would be your summarization of that theory which obviously isn't mine but it's an interesting
2: i, I could see that um i think it's it's even so there to be certainly areas of pop culture that maybe steer people away from the light but i think there's also philosophies i think there's multi-tiers to it you know in the 50s and stuff there's also atrocious things going on around the world like Bolshevism. And I think there's this, it's not just one thing that kind of veers society off course. Um, For me, music actually was a a positive thing. Um, For instance, like in my high school and college days, I'm not anymore, but I was straight edge. And the music was something that appealed to me a lot of the straight edge hardcore. So it kind of kept me from perhaps going down a path of drinking drugs and things like that. I think there's a lot more to that as well. Um, I think it it appealed to me for other reasons. But I think it always had a positive effect. I try to listen to positive bands. I always didn't. I mean, there was a lot of metal bands that have a lot of darkness to them. I really can't listen to that stuff now. Um, You know, like stuff like European black metal. I have a hard time. I, I, I used to listen to a lot of that stuff when I was young. A lot of the imagery and the darkness that's there, whether they believe in it or not. I think being around it and exposed to it can kind of change the way we think about things or dampen our soul. Um, But I think there's there's so many things. Um, In the Orthodox Church, we say that um, we're not of this world. So we're in the world, we're not of it. So these different uh, entertainments, these different philosophies and beliefs, we don't think that they're there necessarily to nurture us in their fullness, that they can lead us astray. Um, I try to take what is best. Like when I still listen to music, it's kind of the only guilty pleasure I have. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not into you know video games or TV or anything like that. But I listen to a lot of bands that have a, a good message and have something to say. And despite the fact that they're heavy, that doesn't really make a difference. You know, they, they they're awesome. <laughs> you know, they have uh, something to say. So, but there are I think some of the the music that can lead people. Um, I used to have a mission parish in the inner city. And people are always blaming hip hop for violence and stuff like this. I don't buy it. I think if you live according to like what a lot of the lyrics say, sure. But I think there's poetry there. They're saying something. They're telling about what they have experienced. Um, I even teamed up with a rapper a couple of years ago. His name's Big O. And um, he's done a lot of stuff out there. And you know, he's he's been in jail. He's, he's been a high level drug dealer, all this stuff. And I approached him a couple years ago because he's pretty big in the Worcester area where I had my mission parish. And I said, let's team up and let's go to the kids. Let's have a talk or something. And he, he was more than willing. I mean, so here you have a guy, that's in the rap scene, but he wants to help people as well. Um, so I'm not willing to like demonize all types of music. I think there's certainly some bands that you know, are totally out there and they're dark and, and people can maybe, um, use that as an excuse, maybe if they're going off the path. But I think music can be a very positive uh, influence on people.
0: Yeah, I agree with that for sure. I mean, that's kind of been my whole my whole career. It's all about the lyrics. That's what I'm very focused yeah. on is, is you know invoking positivity and love. And especially in the times we're living in now, it's so important uh, for that energy to exist. Yeah, I've always been fascinated between the light and the dark. And it's always been a conversation for me that's been – you know, difficult at times because, you know, I have people in my circle of friends who are complete, you know, they don't believe in any of it. So it's really hard to engage on a much deeper level. Um, so I've always found that fascinating. It's nice to hear your take on it and, you know, to see that you, you know, your character is very apparent and the things that you keep saying are very apparent. And it's nice it's refreshing for me because I feel like more people like you, I wish were more sort of in the limelight of speaking on what, The faith should actually be because it's turned a lot of people off, including myself, um, to organized religion because, you know, I feel like there's just a control that that happens sometimes. And, you know, there's a lot of dark things that can happen um, when things are said behind the pulpit and you have an entire congregation listening and hanging on every word. And if it's Mm -hmm. spoken from somebody who's got darkness in them, there's an impact there. Uh, have you ever experienced any people within the church that you sort of like felt darkness in them? Because I know I'm the sensitive type of person. I can meet somebody and automatically go, uh, like, I know I've got this weird sixth sense about me. Have you met people within the ministry that you're like, mm, that person's
2: not so good? <laughs> <As> I, <have laughs> you. I you
1: would say it. to
2: Name them. Yeah, no, don't, don't name them. <laughs> as, a, as a whole, between uh, the different like congregations I've been a part of, uh, I mean, there's been issues, maybe the, the people that are struggling with mental health issues or uh, circumstantial issues that are very difficult. But luckily, nothing too dark uh, as far as, you know, ooh, that person would have something demonic going on there. Luckily, I haven't had too many problems. Um, it's more kind of outside of that. You know, we all have problems. So, Of course, as a priest, I'm dealing with people all the time. Um, Even the last couple of weeks, I mean, I was kind of blown away. So the last couple of weeks, um, I reconciled a murderer to the church, someone that was in prison. Um, They had been um, Greek Greek Orthodox. Uh, We're all one church, Greek Orthodox, Albanian, Romanian. It's all one church. Um, I was able to reconcile him to the church, which was uh, very moving for me. I've had to deal with people, um, get them psychiatric counseling because of abuse. Um, I've had other people who uh, was awful. I had a suicide attempt, someone outside of the church and they didn't know who to call. So they called me and I was like, oh my goodness. And I had to arrange for all that help to take place. So there's a lot of darkness at different levels out there. Um, but luckily, you know, in my own congregations, they've always been pretty stable, um, but it's just this human suffering everywhere. And I think sometimes as a clergyman, if you're identifiable, people are going to come to you, even if they don't have a spiritual path, they just, they want to talk to somebody. They want uh, some type of assistance. They don't know what to do. They're at their lowest point. Um, And it's something that is humbling. And I certainly don't have all the answers, but I'll certainly always try to help people. And that's all I guess I can do is put it in God's hands and, you know, do my best as a clergyman with the limited resources I have and, and just, you know, just do my best to serve people.
1: It's pretty amazing. I was talking to Jesse just before we jumped on the zoom with you. And and I was sort of saying to him how, you know, it's quite interesting how, how many people who would have spent their whole lives claiming to be atheists or non-believers, when are either presented with death or fall upon really hard times, do make that transition right they cut. they go to prayer as salvation and sure it's it's a powerful and an amazing feeling i think to believe in something and to take comfort and to get strength from you know something other than ourselves something bigger than ourselves greater than ourselves
2: one of the other things i often hear it's something i definitely wanted to bring up in our conversation is that especially when it comes to like the demonic obsession possession all the spiritual talk People oftentimes say that, well, it's not real. This is all uh, psychiatric in nature. And actually, a lot of this stuff, it it caused me to reexamine some things. And I decided to go back to school a couple years ago and get a master's degree in psychology. Um, I just finished it up last fall. So it's only about six months ago. And it was a breath of fresh air because I think sometimes those of the clergy, might say something is a spiritual problem, but maybe it's addictions or it's uh, from trauma, from abuse. And then you have the world of psychology that doesn't necessarily recognize faith or its importance. They'll deem everything merely psychological, not spiritual. So I try to be very cautious how I approach an individual to try to really figure out what's going on there. Um, for that reason, you know, that's why I was kind of inspired to go back to school. And it was pretty cool because the people the professors were all very accepting that, in fact, I was a priest and, you know, I had this other life as well. And at the end of the program, you have, you know, typically you have like a thesis you have to write or a special project. And I was very indebted to them that they let me do this. My last project was actually on um, disassociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder, in comparison to those... Uh, that are deemed obsessed or possessed in the religious communities. So I had to write a scientific paper, like, how do we care for these people? Is psychology the only way, or does religion have something to offer? And under the um, tutelage of a a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and uh, the staff, I was able to work on this as kind of a final project. Uh, So if I finished it and was successful, I could get my master's degree. And they were all too happy because once I brought the project up, some of the the professors were opening up, saying, well, "I've kind of experienced some weird things in my psychiatric care with some some people, but I can't say you open anything." Open that
1: door for them. Amazing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so it was a good experience for me to realize that sometimes the psychiatric community is not as closed minded as you think they are, but they're afraid of losing their tenure or their uh, you know their. Uh, ability to serve others because they'll be deemed as like you know the paranormal psychologist or whatever
1: their reputation their right Their yep.
2: reputation's out the door i mean if they you know they uh, say this person's demonically afflicted i mean they'll probably lose their practice or their license or whatever it may be um and that's something that was kind of an eye opener for me as well kind of getting into that realm because eventually i'd like to also uh I work a regular job as well. I'm what's known as a bivocational priest. So I work full time to support myself and my family. And then I'm a priest as well. Um, So I'd like to get more into like alcohol and drug counseling and a lot of this stuff that I encountered in ministry, maybe on a formal level. And that's one of the reasons also I went back to school. But it was great to see that a lot of those that are, you know, medical doctors, and even they say that spirituality has a great impact on people in their practice. Um, Sometimes they can't necessarily treat them with the drugs or just the counseling, they need something more. And I think we're gonna see a lot more with um, evidence-based scientific papers and stuff showing how important faith is um, for the healing of the human person. And I don't think it's because of the psychology of the person, I think there's actually true healing that takes place on a deeper level uh, with these folks
0: yeah we we're talking about um energy earlier and, and I, I for me i think it's a nice way to sort of put a positive end to this incredible conversation we've been having is is going back to energy energy being something that everybody believes in regardless of you have a religion or not and the power of that energy that can manifest through something like prayers and i always talk to people about this i'm a very prayerful person and you know there's this joke on the internet like thoughts and prayers when something bad happens and someone says i'll keep you in my prayers and there's people scoff at it Uh, and i get that because you should take action as well and donate and your time and your money to help people for sure but maybe speak on this because this is something that i believe in firmly invoking something thinking about something focusing your energy on something with other people you know um i I pray with my girlfriend every single day the morning before we eat you know and it's it's all about gratitude it's all about you know we pray over our food that the food will like nourish us Mm -hmm. and there's been studies that you could do that over some a a glass of water and that the element of the water will change based on your energy around it so this is a very real thing so my big thing lately is Prayer is powerful. You don't necessarily have to 100% be this religious figure to have that work. And especially if there's a bunch of people agreeing with you and thinking and listening and putting their energy to that. So maybe speak on the power of prayer and how people can utilize that in their own lives, um, even if they're not a a religious person. Because that's something I firmly believe in, that transfer and that sharing of energy can be an amazing thing for people
2: with prayer, and um, obviously, you know, you always hear the term, the grace of God. Well, in the Orthodox Church, we believe the grace of God is the uncreated energies of God himself. So we're trying to commune with God. We're communing with his energies. So it's not like, um, you know, prayer is not just asking for stuff. It's a relationship. And if the divine is nurturing us, he is nurturing us with that divine energy. you know, what you said about the waters is interesting because uh, every year after Christmas, we have what's known as theophany and we bless water, you know, make holy water for the year, bless people's homes, bless people, bless their cars. And I'm convinced there's a change in that water. It's no longer mere water. It's sanctified. It's used for a purpose. Um, The energy that's invoked there the priest doesn't prayer to, to have you know any negative aspect of the water removed to invoke the holy spirit to bless these these waters so we're invoking energy and you know uncreated energy as we see it or the grace of god is something that we can experience through prayer it's what helps change us nurture us um, it's what makes us whole so prayer is huge because it's kind of our lifeline to the sacred Um, If we do it just like, you know, we think there's a a, a guy with a white beard in the sky and it's a vending machine and we ask for stuff, we're going about it the wrong way, man.
1: Please let me win the
2: lottery. (laughs) So that actually happened to me recently, uh, probably about a year or two ago. I was at a a rest stop on uh, the Mass Pike. I was heading out towards Boston. And, you know, I'm usually in a cassock and I have a, a pectoral cross I always wear and I have a head covering. And I'm getting out of my car and I hear this guy yelling, Father, Father, come here, help. And, of course, what's wrong? And he goes, I'm headed down to Mohegan Sun to the casino. Give me a blessing so I can win. (laughs) I mean, it was awesome. I mean, that made my day. I thought it was pretty funny. (laughs) Pray I win big. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Do you know what, Maximus? What um, what a great way to establish the kind of conversations we're going to be having on this show with guests. You've set the bar so high, and it's so refreshing to listen to somebody talk about spirituality and science and music and, and love and all these, you know, universal topics that some people might fall more in line with a and b and c but you bring them all together in such an intelligent and sensitive and accessible way so i want to thank you for educating me and inspiring me and and for gracing us with with an amazing conversation today it's been amazing hasn't it jesse
0: yeah it has been thank you and and another thing too is just it's comforting to me to know that people like you are out there um, you know, cause people do really, especially during hard times, lean on religion and lean on prayer and to have somebody who is in it for the right reasons, you know, cause I've seen both sides of the coin. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure and it's nice to be able to have this conversation to touch on the, the dark stuff, but to sort of end it on a nice note, you know, and I think the power mm-hmm. of, uh being positive and having positive intentions and prayers is important. So, yeah, thanks for sharing everything, man. It's been great. And what, yeah, the bar is definitely set high for, for guests, <laughs> uh, for guest people. It's awesome. It's great, man.
1: Maximus, thanks. are you happy to put out some details, if a, a website or an address if anybody wants to hit you up or ask you questions or explore any of these topics further? Are you happy to have people yeah. contact you?
2: Um, I don't do much with my blog, but if you just even Google put in Father Maximus McIntyre, uh, probably a parish website, um, some personal we'll emails and stuff.
1: In the show description as well. So, cool. Can find them that way.
2: Yeah, I'm always, I love hearing from people. And, you know, sometimes uh, from stuff like this, I've done other podcasts or radio shows. Sometimes cases come in, people need help or they need to be steered in the right direction. And never mind uh, talking with anybody that has experienced the darkness and wants to obtain the light or they're having a haunting and they don't know what to do or how to reach out to somebody for help. Um, But, no, this has been incredible. I thank you you guys so much.
0: Yeah, our pleasure, my man, for sure. Keep fighting the good fight, brother.
1: I will. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything you'd like to leave us on, Maximus? Any, you know, Jerry Springer-style thought for for the day? (laughs) 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 Or really just words of encouragement and strength for anybody that might be suffering right now? Because, obviously, this year has been so hellish for so many people um, in so many ways. Is there anything you could share from, you know, things you've learned that help people in these times of you know uh, extreme adversity
2: i think two words love one another If you see people that are suffering because of loneliness because of the coronavirus and they're isolated uh, there's people that have lost loved ones there's people that don't have that human connection because everybody's afraid to see one another just do your best to love one another i mean that's that's what this is all about and you know this has been an unfortunate thing um yeah the other thing i would say is you guys have a unique opportunity here that's why i was so attracted to the show I don't think you're developing just a listening audience. You're developing a community. Your, your people are going to engage in this show, whether it's the two of you talking or the guests, you guys have a great platform and I know you guys are going to use it to get into some topics that can help a lot of people and, um, that I wish you the best. I'm going to be a listener. I mean, obviously, I, I'm familiar more so with, with Jesse's work. Uh, but I also, Matt, I saw you had a book that was published. I'm going to buy that this week. Oh, amazing. Um,
1: yeah, Jesse's he, in it as well, along with me. Is he? Other. Okay. Yeah, Jesse's in it,
2: yeah. I got to say, I got to thank Jesse too, because the last couple of years when he was brave enough, I don't want to embarrass you, Jesse, but to come out and speak about mental health issues with your platform as being a singer of such a big band, you're going to help so many people with that. Um It's an amazing uh, almost it is like a ministry of sorts. And you know, I commend you for that. It was great when I heard it. Um, it moved me. Um, even so much, you probably don't remember this buddy, but uh, in the fall, um, I was getting all these advertisements popping up on Facebook and stuff for cameo where you can actually have people come and, and you know send a message to a loved one. And I looked on that and I saw Jesse, and I had him send a message to my son. And it was basically not because Jesse is his favorite singer, but also because of the stuff Jesse talks about. And I thought he needed to hear it from somebody besides dad. So I wanted him to hear it from his favorite musician and Jesse knocked it out of the park.
0: And that's the type of stuff. Wow, yeah, I mean, (laughs) thanks for helping support me too,
2: brother. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you guys have an incredible platform. I know you're going to use it and open up a lot of doors for people, give people comfort, probably talk about all kinds of issues. And I mean, incredible. I mean, God bless your work.
0: Thank you. Yeah, keep us in your prayers, Father. That's that's Whoa. the way to go. Yeah, give us some give us some good God juju. <laughs> that's beautiful, man. Thank and you. I'm man. sure
2: I'm sure I'll see you. Um, I promised my son that I would take him to a Kilchwick show. So
0: <laughs> oh, I, uh, when that happens, it, hit me up. We'll, we'll get uh, exchange stuff on um, uh, Instagram. I'll get you guys VIP. We'll, we'll come meet the band for sure. Oh, thank the, you for you for the good work that you're doing, spreading love. Let's do this. All right thank you so much (laughs) thank you brother
1: guys all right have a great day thank you so much maximus that was truly incredible and i'm well enough over here thank you i love you guys take care
0: take care brother thank you bye